1: One of the maneuvers that I flew was
2: the max turn, and that is pulling up to nine Gs. And so there's always this risk when you're pulling nine Gs of G-locking. And G-locking is a G-induced loss of consciousness. So that's when so much pressure is being put on your body that it's stronger than your heart's ability to pump blood to your brain. And so the blood gets forced out of your head and you black out.
0: Okay.
1: Please welcome Shell
0: Curran of The U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds has taken Captain Curran
2: all over the world.
1: He's flown 163 combat hours over Afghanistan. That makes her a whole
2: lot of woman. You are well aware how dangerous it is. You try not to think about it. You do get desensitized to it. You get used to doing it.
0: How did you overcome that kind of fear? From 2019 to 2021, she was the
2: only female fighter pilot and shares how she hopes to accomplish far more than just impressive maneuvers. I felt like I was under a microscope. There were a lot more people paying attention to whether I would succeed or fail. You feel like you have to prove yourself. And so you feel like you have to put up this facade of bravado of like knowing everything and being the best at everything. And I kind of shot myself in the foot by doing that because...
0: Not to mention, she's also a successful keynote speaker and the best-selling author of a children's book called Upside Down Dreams.
2: Now she hopes to inspire other young children to dream big. The key to progress is having the courage to start something when you're not ready, but believing yourself enough to know you will figure it out along the way. Yeah, so we're well aware, for sure, of the fatalities that have happened in the past. It's kind of one of those things that especially with the Thunderbirds, it's openly talked about you know, in the history of the team because part of it is that the commander really wants everyone to understand how big of a deal it is for you to wear that patch on your chest and what has gone into it, blood, sweat, and tears, and lives. Things can go wrong. You're a single pilot in an aircraft. You're flying at very high speeds. There's not a lot of room for air. And then you go to the Thunderbirds and you're flying at just as fast as speeds, if not faster, in a much less forgiving environment. Mm. But you can go unconscious and hopefully you wake back up in time to recover the aircraft before it impacts the ground, right? And not everyone has. There have been fatalities, even in that setting, doing that thousands of feet above the ground. Um, so can I put that in perspective? You know, As a fighter pilot in a gray squadron, which is you know a combat squadron where the aircraft are painted gray, we might do a high G turn up at 10,000 feet or higher and so there's always this risk when you're pulling nine g's of g-locking and g-locking is a g-induced loss of consciousness so that's when so much pressure is being put on your body that it's stronger than your heart's ability to pump blood to your brain and so the blood gets forced out of your head and you black out and for people that have seen top gun they have a g-lock scene um in the movie Mm. so That already sounds serious and dangerous, right? And now go to the Thunderbirds as the left solo, one of the maneuvers that I flew was the max turn. And that is pulling up to nine Gs. I wouldn't sustain it for the full 360 degrees, but I was anywhere between seven and a half and nine that whole time. And now my minimum altitude is 100 feet. So compare 100 feet to 10,000 feet. Okay. If a G-lock was to happen, there's zero recovery chance. It's over. So you're just in such a high-repercussion environment. You are well aware how dangerous it is. You try not to think about it. You do get desensitized to it. You get used to doing it. But occasionally, you know, you'll have something unexpected happen. You might have a close call, especially you're flying. I would fly as close as three feet um, from other airplanes. The Diamond pilots, which are number one through four, um, I was number five and number six at different points on the team, they get as close as 18 inches from each other. And they're traveling at over 300 miles an hour when they're doing that. So, holy, you know, you can hit turbulence. Someone can make an unexpected slight deviation. There, there are things where, you're like, okay, that was a little bit close for comfort, and it does make you think of how serious of a business you're in. But you also are the best trained at it in the world. You, you practice an insane amount. There's so much repetition that goes into it um, when you're learning. There is a time period where you really, really have to push yourself to kind of overcome your natural survival instinct, which makes you want to just get out of that formation, get away from that other airplane, climb higher above the ground. And you have to force yourself into these uncomfortable environments, but your skill level does catch up. Your comfort level catches up, which is pretty remarkable, I think. And you get pretty comfortable in that setting, but there is no doubt that it is dangerous.
0: Wow, I have so many questions. Um, maybe I'll just ask one of them for now. But uh, so uh, as far as being scared of that, because you're very aware, you've, you've gone through the training, you've done everything you can to, you know, reduce that risk, but you're still able to get up and get into that, that jet plane every every time you need to. So is it all about, like, how did you overcome that kind of fear?
2: Or did you have that fear? Oh, it's it's still there. Um... Okay. I think that's something i commonly share with people now that people have this misconception that people that are doing things like i did in my last career don't have fear right that they're like just so brave that they somehow one day get to this point where fear is just gone and they're like fully Hmm. confident in their ability to do it and everything's going to be fine um i think rather like courage and fear they are interwoven they stand together side by side and Practicing to the level where, like the level that we did on the Thunderbirds, you get to a point where you feel very proficient, you feel very confident in your skill level to the point where you can go do it even when you are scared. Um, And I don't think that anyone would say that there's no fear involved ever, because there definitely is, especially on days where the weather's bad or it's a challenging show location or early in the program when you're learning everything. The fear is much more noticeable than it is later on once you get comfortable, but it's definitely never gone.
0: Yeah, makes sense. How do you learn to make those extremely fast calculated decisions in the air? Is there is it all about the simulations that you do before? Is there anything else?
2: Yeah, it's all about the preparation, the practice. And I think people wish there was like a a key to success like this easy button where you're like, hey, here's the secret. This is how you operate at this level. You practice so much that your brain can anticipate things and you can kind of predict based on the information that you have, what the outcome's going to be. And the only way to get to that state where you can do that well is by repetition. And so kind of that building block approach where you're starting in a slower airplane that's going 90 knots, and then you're moving up to one that's faster, and then you're moving up to one that's even faster, and that's years to get to that point. Um, but your brain slowly adapts, and you it was incredible to see how adaptable the human brain is. Like Coming from flying the F-16 for over seven years and then going to the Thunderbirds, I felt like I was starting over, like I was trying to learn something mm-hmm. that felt so difficult initially. Um, you're like my brain just couldn't keep up right you would get what Mm. we always call a helmet fire which is where you feel like your brain's just like smoke would be coming out of your ears if it could because your (laughs) brain is just over task saturated you're just overloaded Um, but with time and repetition you got to the point where you could make very thought out decisions in very short amount of time Um, I can tell a story about a near miss, I guess that really demonstrates that if you want.
0: Yeah, go for it. Uh
2: for it. so try to explain this as simply as possible. On the Thunderbirds, we do as solos, which is what I was, I was opposing solo and eventually the lead solo. We do something called opposing passes, which is basically it looks like a game of chicken to the audience. The two jets are flying straight at each other and at show center, they flip 90 degrees to go put their wing up and they pass into the audience who's down on the ground looking up it looks like the airplanes are like, overlapped with each other. They look like they're going to hit. In actuality, and we call that a good hit, and we want a good hit, but actually our jets are, you know, maybe 50 to 80 feet apart, depending on the day. So we are decently far away from each other. Keep in mind we're each flying at about 500 miles an hour. So we always say we have a thousand miles an hour of combined closure towards each other. So things are happening very fast. we would be at a two mile point where I would be two miles from the center point where we wanna cross. And the other jet would be two miles from the center point on his side. And it would only be 14 seconds later before we crossed. So that gives you a concept of we, it took us about 14 seconds to go two miles. Um, So as the lead solo at the time, we were doing what we call the imposing inverted, which is where I was flying upside down about 150 feet off the ground. And the other jet was coming at me and as we crossed, I would make a radio call where I would flip right side up and he would flip upside down. And that would happen right at the show center point. So that's that's Jeez. how it's supposed to work. So I was on my second year on the team. So I was the instructor. I was the one upside down. And number six was a new solo. He was new to the team and it was training season. So I was teaching him this maneuver. He had been doing fine, but much like all of us when we were new, he was too far away. And so... When you're too far away the hit doesn't look good to the crowd right like you can tell Mm. one jet looks smaller than the other it takes away the whole effect and so you're constantly when someone's new you're encouraging them like okay you gotta get closer and that kind of goes with overriding that survival instinct because it's not natural to get closer when you're pointed straight at another jet at 500 miles an hour Um, and so we had some safety contracts that we would use to make sure we didn't hit each other and how that worked is I, as the lead solo, owned one side of a show line. And so imagine an air show where the show line is just a runway. So you're in the crowd, you see a runway out in front of you. That's where all the jets are doing their maneuvers. I would Mm. own the side closest to the audience. Number six would own the side further away from the audience. If something happened where our timing was really off, we lost visual of each other. So all of a sudden you're like, where'd the other jet go? Which could happen because it's a small airplane and it's pointed straight at you. It's hard to see, especially because it's painted white you would just move to your side. And so instead of having this nice, close, impressive hit to the audience, we would be far away, but we would be safe. And that's, you know, the ultimate goal is to do this safely. So that was our contract. So I'm upside down, Um, we're approaching each other and I can see his jet in my display, which is what I look through where my airspeed L2, all that stuff is. I'm hanging in the harness, right? My braids hanging out the back of my helmet, the waist um, belt is the only thing like holding me in upside down. And normally his aircraft would be right in the middle of my display. And as he got closer, it would be very last minute where it would start to move and go past me. I realized that he is not moving. He's exactly in the center of my heads up display and he has not drifted at all towards his side. And so I realized that he is not offsetting as much as he needs to. He's been too far away and he's about to be way too close, like going to hit me too close. And so in my head, I'm like, okay, We have a contract for this. I need to move my jet towards my side of the line, the safe side of the line that I own, which is towards the crowd. However, I'm A upside down, where left is now right, and we are out over a training range north of Las Vegas, where it's just brown desert. There is no crowd out there. Our show line is not a runway. It's a bunch of Connex containers, like shipping containers from the back of a truck lined up the right side of it and the left side of it look identical. It's just flat brown dirt. And so while I'm hanging upside down, I suddenly have this realization that I am not 100% sure what side of the line is mine. And I know if I move my jet with my rudder, so I like move it left or right without banking my wings, if I move it to the wrong side, we're both gonna move last second to the wrong, to the same side we're gonna hit each other. Like that's, that is the highest risk area. And so, I make a decision to not move and all of this decision making and thought process and everything happens in maybe two seconds and so I hold my spot and last second I see I'm upside down right so he's going to pass under the belly of my airplane where I can't see him because I can't see through the floor of the airplane so I see him coming see him coming his jet gets very very big and then I see him start to roll his wings as he disappears and i don't say anything i'm supposed to make a radio call there for us to flip positions i don't say anything because mm-hmm. i'm in like shock right now i'm like oh well we didn't hit each oh other i'm still alive <laughs> we're still good and i roll up right and eventually i make the radio call for us to clear the line um it took me a second to regroup we ended up flying the rest of the flight we did a bunch of other maneuvers we still trained for like 30 more minutes we went home we landed I met him on the ramp as we got out of our jets and before I could even say anything, he was just like, I am so sorry. He knew what he had done, He it also scared him, he scared himself, um, mm. he never did that again. Um, it okay. kind of became the running joke that you know he had been too far away for so long, he had found the inner limit, so now he should have some boundaries, of he needs to be somewhere between the two. Mm. Um, we watched the tapes, which is where we could see the recording of the heads up display and the, t- the camera's not great, so you couldn't really see his jet until it got really close. And when it got close, I've never seen another aircraft that big recorded on that camera in my entire career. And I've, oh my gosh. I've done dogfighting where you're behind someone gunning them and you have a 500-foot restriction for training just for safety reasons, and we were much closer than that. And when you're doing that, you're going the same direction. We're going opposite directions at 500 miles an hour each. I will never know how close our airplanes got to each other, but really damn close. If we had hit each other, it would've just been game over for both of us. Um, But I think it's a really interesting example of how your mind can change the concept of time, how you can get Mm. temporal distortion, how your brain slows things down. And the only way you get to that point is through a lot of training, a lot of repetition. And I think I made the right decision to not move. I think it could have been a very different story had I ruddered and ruddered to the wrong side. Um, right. I, yeah, it would have okay. been bad. <laughs> oh, my
0: gosh. Talk about a split-second decision. If you if you rolled to the wrong direction, right? That, I mean, could have been just as bad, if, if not worse. Oh, my gosh. What inspired you to join the Air Force?
2: So I was a little bit of a late bloomer, I guess, when it came to deciding to join the Air Force. I was, you know, most of the way through high school, was a good student and needed a way to pay for college. I think people expect for me to say that I knew I wanted to be a fighter pilot and I'd been inspired to do that since I was a little kid, but that kind of came along later and I applied for an Air Force ROTC scholarship, which is where you can go to college while also training to eventually commission as an officer in the military. And I did that as a criminal justice major, planning on doing four years in the Air Force, pay back my scholarship, and then get out and go to the FBI. Um, But I had a little bit of a pivot about halfway through college that made me decide to pursue becoming a fighter pilot instead.
0: Okay, interesting. And how did you make that decision to actually, like, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna become a fighter pilot.
2: Yeah, so about halfway through college, um, we visited a base. We went down to Tyndall Air Force Base, which is in Florida. And I got to see two fighter jets up close for the first time. I had seen them from a distance a few times. Um, But never right in front of me and I saw two f-15s taking off in full afterburner uh, at dusk So they had the big orange flame shooting out the back the jet noise, you know Vibrates your entire body and it was just a visceral experience for me. I got goosebumps I remember just kind of being awestruck watching them take off and at that moment. I was like, okay forget this FBI thing How do I go do that?
0: Yeah, no kidding I've been watching some videos lately of them and, and I'm sure we'll throw some videos in the in the video for those watching on YouTube. Uh, but they are they are intense. <laughs> yeah. And I've read not only are the, the you know the jets themselves intense, but obviously the requirements to become an Air Force pilot is intense. What are some of the toughest requirements?
2: I would say the thing that gets most people are the medical requirements. You know, twenty twenty vision. Um, you just get all of these things checked that you don't normally get checked for a job interview, right? So people will get eliminated for all sorts of things, certain types of allergies, asthma, um, any sort of heart issues that you know don't affect their life in general but might rule them out from being a pilot in the Air Force. And so it's unfortunate for a lot of people because their dream can get crushed very early on when they get medically disqualified. Um, after that point, if you make it through that stage into the actual program, uh, I mean, it's just rigorous in general. A lot of people don't really know if they're going to thrive or fail in that environment until they're in it. So there's a decent amount that wash out. Um, some people really struggle with air sickness and they'll keep pushing through even though they feel terrible. And eventually it just becomes a factor where they can't really overcome it. Um, so there's all different sorts of things that, that remove people from consideration for it, but it's, it's a fairly competitive program.
0: Yeah, no kidding. It sounds like it. I was reading through the requirements, and like you just said, there are 2020 20 vision. I'd be out. I got contacts on right now, <laughs> and allergies. I got allergies to some degree as well, too. So, um, yeah, crazy. And, and so, you checked all those boxes off for on the medical side. What, what about the physical side, the mental side? How difficult were those challenges?
2: So as far as physical fitness, um, you kind of had the baseline Air Force physical fitness test, which is just a mile and a half run, some pushups, some sit-ups. It's not, not too difficult. And that's just not specific to pilots. That's everyone in the Air Force that has to pass that. Um, as you get into the more prof- high performance aircraft, fitness does become more of a factor, especially as you start pulling G-forces, you know, you're getting all that pressure on your body in the cockpit. There's some strength required to be able to cope with that. And some endurance required to be able to be in kind of this high stress environment for a long time especially when it's hot um, you're carrying a lot of gear there's a lot going on um, i think a tolerance for g-forces is the biggest physical demand and i'm sure we'll get into what those are and how they affect your body um, for sure in the f-16 that is the hardest physical part and as far as mentally you know your things are happening so fast in an aircraft and you progress kind of baby steps the first airplane you learn to fly flies along at like 90 knots, and then you go into something that can go up to 300 knots, and then eventually if you make it into a fighter aircraft, you can fly Mach 2, you know, 1,700 knots. Um, So (laughs) that's a spectrum, right? You don't show up on day one going twice the speed of sound because there's just no way that you could process information that quickly, but it's pretty incredible what your brain can adapt to with a lot of practice over time.
0: Okay, so you kind of like build it up a little bit, right? You start low, uh, slower speeds, and you, and you, your body gets used to it, is what you're saying? Like the the knots and the, the G-force?
2: Yeah, all of the things. So I think the airspeed in the cockpit, your body's not experiencing any forces on it as you go faster. It's a common misconception mm. that when you break the speed oh. of sound, there's something big that happens in the cockpit, but there's not. <laughs> you're just watching the Mach number go past one, and you're like, oh, okay, cool, I'm supersonic. Um, but nothing actually happens in the cockpit you're just sitting there, you're usually fairly comfortable. It's really the G forces that are Hmm. uncomfortable, verging on painful at times. Um, And to put that in perspective, you know, the F-16 can pull nine Gs, which is nine times the force of gravity. So right now we're all at one G. So you weigh whatever you weigh on your bathroom scale. Um, But if you're under nine Gs, you would weigh nine times that so i always use the example of 100 pounds because Mm. i know we have a mixed audience here with metric and imperial but 100 pounds i would feel like i weighed 900 pounds i don't weigh 100 pounds but it's easy math and no one likes to embarrass themselves so we'll go with that um so it's a lot of pressure it's a lot of compression on your back and on your neck um you're looking around while you're under those forces and you're not just surviving in that environment you're actually doing the mission still so you're still making high stakes decisions you're still observing things and Reacting to them, and so it's it's a lot physically and mentally um, to deal with in that high stress environment.
0: Yeah, no kidding. I can I can only imagine to be honest. Before joining the Thunderbirds, you completed combat missions across Europe, Asia, the Middle East, and even two months in Afghanistan. Were there any intense moments or or challenges during that time?
2: I mean, all of those different uh, locations had challenging moments for sure. I think if you want to talk deployment in Afghanistan specifically. Um, you know, the mission that we were doing while we were there is close air support. So we were what we use an acronym, of course. So CAS, we were the only CAS platform in country for a while. So that meant that anytime American troops or our allies, which were Afghan troops as well, needed air support. So they, you know, were in a firefight, they were in an environment where they needed top cover. We were getting called to that tasking. And that is one of the most rewarding missions. If not the most rewarding that you can do but it's also extremely stressful because it's very high stakes you those guys are relying on you to sometimes save their lives and more than that you have the pressure of if you make a mistake you can be putting them in even more danger than they were in before you got there and so for me that was my first deployment and you know you, our instructors would tell us all these stories beforehand and these were guys at least that i was learning from that had deployed to afghanistan six times, eight times, you know, we had been in that war for a long time. And so they were very experienced in that region and those types of missions. And they were like, it's gonna be surreal. The first time you drop anything in combat's going to be surreal. The first time you do it in a situation where you know American lives are on the line, it's gonna be even more surreal. And it's likely gonna be bad weather at night Um, Your wingman in the F-16, you know, only one pilot, but we would always fly with at least two aircraft so we could have mutual support between each other. Your wingman probably had to leave to go air refuel, to go get gas airborne, um, because we would, you know, kind of leapfrog. One would go, then the other would go so that there was always someone there if something happened. And you're like, sure, sure. And I mean, that's what happened to me. My most memorable mission by far was at night. My wingman was there. We had been waiting to hit a target. Um, It was danger close, which means that the target is so close to friendly forces that there's a higher than normal risk that they could actually get hit by shrapnel from your weapon impact. And so you only will employ weapons in that environment if it's high state, it needs to happen, right? That's part of the risk assessment. And so this was one of those situations, which adds an extra layer of risk, an extra layer of stress. Um, And so we had kind of gone through the whole plan between our two aircraft and we hadn't gotten clearance yet from higher headquarters to employ our weapons and he needed to go get gas. So he left, left me by myself over the target area, went to air refuel. And two minutes after he left, I got the call that I was cleared to employ uh, on the radio. And so by myself, first time deployed, Um, luckily there ended up being a UAV, um, so a drone above me in the air that had the ability to help with the attack, to help guide the weapon in with a laser. And they chimed in on the radio. I had no idea who they were. We had not coordinated any of this, but I think it was a really cool example of just the level of trust and teamwork within the military as a whole, because within 30 seconds, I was rolling in and the weapon off my jet. They were guiding it in off of their aircraft, and we hit the target perfectly, achieved the mission effects we were looking for, the threat was mitigated. And it ended, you know, as it should have. Everything went as planned. But that was a very stressful moment for me. I remember when I got clearance and I knew my wingman was gone and I'm trusting someone who I've never met in person. And it's a high-stakes environment. So that one definitely will stick in my memory.
0: <laughs> that whole that whole thing sounded like an episode of, you know, a part of Top Gun in itself. And, and when you say deploy your weapons, that's just like in the movies, like... your missiles and and things like that
2: yeah exactly so that could be anything right um in in top gun you see air-to-air missiles shooting between aircraft we haven't been in an air-to-air fight against another aircraft in a long time luckily all the threats we've been against just don't have aircraft so that's made that part easier um but you know it could be bombs dropping off of your jet on a target it could be rockets um so in this case it was rockets that i was shooting okay
0: rockets wow (laughs) can only imagine. Uh, yeah, that's, that's intense. And that was during your first deployment and your time in Afghanistan. So why did they send you af- to Afghanistan for your first deployment?
2: So, I mean, that's where everyone was going. I mean, not everyone, but most people okay. were going at that time, right? We were in Afghanistan for a very long time. And so there were constantly different units being rotated in. We always had a presence there. Um, and so it was my unit's time to go. And so I went with. So it's most fighter pilots that you would talk to that have been in for a few years have spent time in Afghanistan.
0: Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. And that would have been, what year would that have been around?
2: That was in 2016.
0: Were there any other close calls that you'd be willing to share or describe, or would that be the the craziest one?
2: I think my deployment went pretty smoothly. There wasn't anything else that was like, oh no, things are going south, like this isn't good. Um, I mean, I've had plenty of close calls otherwise i mean on the thunderbirds i hit a vulture um we were flying an air show in colombia like the country of colombia and i was going about the equivalent of 500 miles an hour um and i hit a full-grown vulture so they I, we don't know because there wasn't much left of it afterwards but you know they have a five to six foot wingspan so a couple meters of wingspan right um it put two holes through the side of the airplane which i no. had hit smaller birds before. It happens occasionally. It's usually not a huge deal. Um, this one definitely did some damage. It was the worst air st- or the worst bird strike damage I saw throughout my career personally. Um, the airplane still flew fine. I landed okay. But it was a fairly uh, traumatic oh shit moment airborne because I saw the bird. I mean, it's just a black flash. I have no time to react. I heard it hit the jet and I felt the jet shutter mm-hmm. um, under my feet where it impacted and the f-16 only has one engine and for those people that are familiar with what it looks like it has an intake underneath the cockpit so right below the pilot's butt essentially that's like a giant vacuum cleaner that's where all the engine air goes in into the the fan blades of the motor and if you lose that one engine now you're a glider with not very great wings right you're a little glider with stubby little wings and you have an ejection seat for that type of situation Um, but no one really wants to eject in general no one wants to eject at 500 miles an hour over Columbia. Um, oh my gosh. Part of the bird did go into the intake, but luckily those engines are pretty durable. It's just a wing. Um, the rest, the heavy part of the bird hit the outside of the intake and kind of cartwheeled along the side of the airplane and punched out two about fist-sized holes straight through the metal. Like the pieces it punched out were actually inside um, the hollow area in the intake. I actually have one of them at home. Um, and that metal is strong. It is not easily bent and to just not even, they didn't even just make a dent. It was like a cookie cutter had cut two fist size holes out of the side of the airplane. So I think if that bird had been a foot or so to the other side and had full body had gone into the engine, we'd be having a different conversation and I'd be telling a much different story.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's terrifying. (laughs) Um, so if it had hit the engine and you have you would then would you immediately pretty close to immediately have to eject would you say if the engine went out
2: there's a chance i could have made the airfield from the position i was in um we do practice Mm. simulated flame out landings and the f-16 can glide not very well but if you have enough airspeed you have enough altitude which i was only about two thousand feet in the air so i was pretty low but i was going fast so there's a chance that i could have climbed I'm using that airspeed to get to an altitude where I actually could have dumped the nose over, you know, pointed the jet down, kept enough airspeed to make a pretty much a 180 and land on the runway. With it being an air show practice, we're pretty close to the field the entire time. Um, Everything would have had to go on perfectly for me to make it happen. We've talked a lot about that afterwards. You know, like, do you think you would have made it? And Hmm. who knows? It all depends on how fast you can assess what happened and how fast you could assess that you lost your engine and go through the actions in the cockpit to try to restart it, which it's not gonna restart if a bird took out all the fan blades. Um, you know, it all depends on the pilot's assessment, the decision-making, the reaction time, and then the winds affect it. Like there's so many things that would have had to gone perfectly, otherwise you're ejecting.
0: And, and did, you, did you ever practice ejecting? Was that something you guys, you guys would do um... Obviously, there would be some parachuting, I'd assume. But yeah, tell me about that.
2: So we we would practice, sort of. We wouldn't actually eject out of an aircraft. It's a very traumatic event for your body. And you obviously are losing a very expensive airplane. Um, we went through water survival. We went through land survival. We would practice you know, the immediate actions that you would do if you ejected, as far as like how you position your body to lessen the shock. Um, people had serious injuries from ejecting. Especially with your arms and legs, if you're going fast, flailing injuries, broken bones, dislocations, um, neck injuries. Uh, so it is not taken lightly. It's definitely not something anyone wants to do. It's a last cor- last uh, course of action, you know, rather than riding the aircraft into the ground. Um, but we would practice, you know, how to control the canopy, how to steer, what actions you're going to take if you're going to go towards power lines or towards tree branches, um, how to position your body to land what to do if you land in water, and how to detach the parachute and all of that. So we practice that stuff regularly. It was something you had to do um, several times a year, uh, but it's all simulated, right? You're not actually experiencing mm, okay. the the shock that it has got to be to your body to eject from an aircraft.
0: Yeah, yeah, good to know. Uh, I can only imagine. <laughs> I'm sitting here trying to like picture ejecting out of a, a fighter jet and uh, it's just, you're probably flipping all over and everything, so. Sounds, uh, sounds terrifying. I guess my next question, I was reading about your story and I stumbled upon the fact that you're only one of five women Thunderbirds of all time. And that was one incredible fact. And so tell me, what are the difficulties in becoming specifically a woman Thunderbird or Air Force pilot?
2: So I think a lot of it is the same difficulties that women face in any male-dominated career field. Um, there's a few specifics with the military and with flying high-performance aircraft. You know, in the U.S. at least, cockpit fighter cockpits opened to women about 30 years ago. Um, it was actually the 30th anniversary this year. And so that's a decent amount of time, three decades. You would think that there would be more of us, but we still only make up about 3% of fighter pilots in the Air Force. Um, and so, as you mentioned, I was the fifth female pilot to be part of the Thunderbirds. The Thunderbirds have been around for since 1953. So we're talking about 70 years and there's only been five of us. So I wasn't the first, but there's still, we're just such a small group. And I think some of the challenges are, at least for me personally, I felt like I was under a microscope. Um, Definitely like there were a lot more people paying attention to whether I would succeed or fail. And I felt like if I did fail, that I affected the reputation for all women that would come after me which feels like a big responsibility. And I also felt, especially when I was younger, when I was a new pilot and I would show up to a squadron and you know, if I might be the only woman most of the time, occasionally there was, would be two of us. If something borderline inappropriate was said, someone made a joke or something like that, the conversation would stop, every head in the room would turn and look at me and they would wait for my reaction. And so I kind of felt like I also carried the responsibility of being the litmus test for what was acceptable in the entire organization. And as a young lieutenant, mid-20s, trying to learn this difficult career, I did not want that extra responsibility that that's not my job, that shouldn't come from me, that should come from the commander at the top of the unit. And so kind of just those extra pressures, they don't sound like that big of a deal, but they do add up over time. And there's just a lot of small things where you're constantly reminded that the environment's not built for you so you're having to adapt to it um, rather than just show up as yourself and so really basic things that people don't think about like going to the bathroom in the airplane became a huge deal because the equipment wasn't built for you to successfully Mm. do that and so you're flying a 30 million dollar airplane you're being entrusted with making life or death decisions but something as simple as using the bathroom is kind of overlooked and you're having to stress about that and figure it out and so little things like that definitely add up over time and they become additional stressors that you just don't need
0: yeah no kidding you know it's it's one of those conversations that it almost feels like this we'd be having this 50 years ago right like in a lot of uh workplaces and and things like that but uh it's crazy to hear yeah only about like three percent of fighter pilots are, are women still today and is that changing is that dynamic do you see that changing every few years or is it still not so much
2: it's changing very slow. It's like painfully slowly. I think when I mm. first came in as a new F-16 pilot, the number was about 2% and now it's about 3%. Uh and that was, you know, in the 2010, so 13 plus years ago. So it's it's going up. I do see more women going through training. I do see more women getting fighter aircraft in general out of pilot training and being young in the career field. So I think those numbers are steadily increasing. It's just a very slow-moving machine. It takes a long time to change an entire organization and really to change society's perception of are women women welcome in this career field? Is it something that's open to them? Despite it being 30 years, a lot of people still think it's not an option. And I think popular media is helping change that, right? Like having a female pilot in top gun is a big deal. Um that shows a lot of little girls and young mm-hmm. women that, oh hey, this is something I could go after if that's my dream. And so I think examples like that that are high profile being more and more common will eventually shift the numbers
0: yeah no kidding and i, I think you're doing a great job yourself with that you know you're you're public you're talking to people you're on instagram uh, we will talk maybe more about that uh soon here but did, did the latest top gun movie i haven't seen the latest one did it have a, a female uh, fighter pilot
2: it did yeah so okay, phoenix um was one of the main pilots that's participating in the mission um that's trying to figure out how to crack kind of the puzzle that is the mission that they're trying to achieve. And she was a great character and it was really cool to see that representation, just to know how many people saw that movie. You know, it obviously just crushed the box offices and all across the world. Um, and then they had a Phoenix Barbie doll. And I think she just hmm. has a whole following of girls and women who hmm. are really excited to see themselves in such a cool role.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. That's great news. Now, what advice would you give to women and young girls joining maybe the Air Force, but also just any male dominated field?
2: So I think, you know, I think of it like a pyramid where the foundation is really being good at your job, competence, and that's true regardless of gender. But, you know, I mentioned I felt like I was under a microscope and that's still true. And so a lot of the hesitations that people have or objections people have to you being there, they just disappear when you show that you're really competent in your position. So I think that's what people should focus on. It can become very easy to spend a lot of energy worrying about what people think and worrying about normalizing your presence in an organization. But I think if you can focus on learning as much as you can, being humble, being open to feedback and taking it and moving forward in a way that you're just improving your craft, whatever it is, as soon as you show that you're really good at what you do, a lot of the people that are questioning if you deserve to be there, the naysayers, they just disappear. And you have all of a Mm. sudden a huge group of allies who are like, heck yeah, she crushes it. Why would we not want her here?
0: Mm. It's kind of like show them what you can do. But also you mentioned a few other things there. Be humble. And um, what was the other one?
2: Yeah, I think being open to feedback. So that's something the fighter pilot community in general really we pride ourselves in is, you Mm. know, going and flying a mission and then spending sometimes like four times as long in the debrief setting where we look at an entire flight um every little piece of it everyone that's made a mistake talks about it whether you're a young lieutenant which is the lowest rank or you're leading the entire organization and you're a colonel and you've been doing this for 20 years if you made a mistake during that flight you're fessing up and we're looking at why it happened if it was bad information if it was a poor decision um, whatever it was so that we can kind of figure out why we things went awry and how we can learn from it to do better next time and not everyone thrives in that environment Um, regardless of gender. And so I think that can be something that anyone could take into any career field, You know, going in with that mentality where when you show up, you don't know everything. And I think especially if you're a woman in a male-dominated career field and you do feel like there's this extra attention, extra pressure on you. I mean, I fell into this trap when I was young in my first assignment. You feel like you have to prove yourself. And so you feel like you have to put up this facade of bravado of like, knowing everything and being the best at everything. And I kind of shot myself in the foot by doing that because I missed out on opportunities where I should have admitted I didn't know and I should have asked for extra help. And not only would that have helped me learn the thing I was struggling with, but it would have also helped me build, you know, strong relationships with the people around me and find mentors and all of that would have just helped me move forward in my career a lot quicker at the beginning. Instead, I kind of struggled on my own, just feeling like I needed to do it all alone just to prove that I deserved to be there.
0: Yeah, I like that. I think that's great advice and, and applies to so many fields as well, as well. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Being a fighter pilot is highly stressful, especially after these stories you just shared with us. How do you deal with that stress?
2: It was a learning process uh that took me some time in my career. Um I think I you know, from out the gate, I just I had good study habits going through school, going through college. That's how I got a scholarship. That's how I did well in flight training, I think. So my My prioritization and my time management was pretty good already. And I think if it's not good, that's like a huge place to start for people because a lot of us procrastinate. And that puts you in a much more stressful situation than you needed to be in. Um, So kind of getting that sorted out. Um, But you know, the schedule, the demands on your body, all of that is stressful on top of just the high stakes, high stress situations that you get into in the aircraft. I really honed that in while I was on the Thunderbirds, because we were on the road about 240 days a year for three years. Um, I was pulling nine Gs every single flight, which you don't normally do every flight uh, in an F-16. So my body was getting beat up. And kind of the thing that I found was, I really did prioritize sleep. I mean, that sounds like such a like simple answer, but getting seven to eight hours a night of sleep became, like it had to happen. I would say no to all kinds of cool experiences that would pop up while we were traveling on the road in order to prioritize that um, but for me my stress relief was working out um, which i'm glad it was a healthy thing right it helped me perform in the cockpit but i would prioritize that i would wake up early if i needed i would do it in a hotel gym if required i would go for a run outside in a new city we were in if that's what it needed to be whatever it was i would make sure it happened and that was. A way to keep my body healthy and you know ready to react to things and deal with the physical stresses but it also really really helped me mentally like it was just an outlet where i could not stress about any work stuff i wasn't looking at emails i wasn't worried about text messages i was just there doing my thing um and it became such an outlet and i still use that now um, as a stress outlet and i think it's a lot of people would say that that work out on a regular basis and it's just such a great option for a healthy way to manage stress
0: yeah, absolutely. I, I live and breathe by that as well. I think just the, the fact that working out and doing something physical like that has on your mental state is is really incredible. And, um, you know, I went for a jog earlier. Uh, so, that <laughs> you know, part of the reason why to, to be less stressful myself. So absolutely. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing. How do you stay motivated as a pilot?
2: It ebbs and flows. Um, I think a lot of people have the misconception that you're just automatically motivated because it's a cool job. <laughs> Uh, especially with the Thunderbirds, right? Something so visible, you're in front of all these people and everyone's like, ooh, ah, like the show is impressive. And that's the goal. And so it can be hard for people to understand that you can get burned out, you can get down, you can have those bad days when you're doing something so cool. Um, But it becomes a job. It's, like I said, high stress, high stakes, and that can wear on you. Um, And so for me, it was reminding me why I I'm reminding myself why I applied to be on the team in the first place. And it wasn't the cool flying, it wasn't to do that really unique type of high stakes flying. Um, It was actually to motivate other people and inspire other people. And I would think about the interactions that I got to have with little kids, especially with Mm -hmm. little girls, who were seeing someone that looked like them doing something that seemed almost superhero-esque. And I could see that on their faces, how impactful that was for them. And so, you know, when I would get tired and it was late in the season, I hadn't seen my family in weeks and all of the things, I would reflect on those moments where I saw that impact happening. And I would try to remind myself that that one interaction for me might be the hundredth one I did that day, but for that person, it might be the only one they ever have with someone in my position. And so however I interact with them, I have the power to uplift them and plant this seed of inspiration, or I have the power to leave a really negative interaction in their minds, right? Like she was cold, she clearly didn't wanna talk to me, she was in a hurry. And so I would remind myself of my why, of why I went through all the effort to compete and to get into such a high stakes environment. And that really kept me motivated, even when the days and the months and the weeks got long.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think having a strong why is just so important with anything you're, you're trying to do um, do you have any uh, rituals or morning routines?
2: I've been working out as part of it for sure. Uh, it's yep. evolved um, from the time I was on the Thunderbirds and the time I was on in other active duty squadrons to now as an entrepreneur. Um, the two things that probably stay consistent are fitness and coffee, <laughs> 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 which I think is not profound, but maybe it is because anyone can take advantage of those two things. You don't have to be in the position that I was in Um, I know a lot of people have very complex morning routines, you know, with journaling or meditation. And I think whatever it is, there's not a right answer. One size fits all for everyone. It's just making sure you have a time in the morning to do something that gives you time to reflect, to recharge. And for me, I get that by working out. But for someone else that might be taking 15, 20 minutes to journal or to write, you know, while they have their coffee, I, I think doing that instead of just hitting snooze on your alarm again and again to the point where you're late and you're rushing out the door and you're grabbing your to-go mug and there's like no time to just set your intention for the day to center yourself before you get into the stress can really doing that versus having some sort of ritual routine that centers you can really set the tone for your entire day so you don't have to do what i do but i think people should do something
0: yeah, absolutely. Find something that that works for you. That's you know ideally healthy because both coffee, working out, all those things you mentioned there are are in general not you know bad for you. They in general they're good for you. So uh, I can think of some bad habits that you could do in the morning, and and snoozing and looking at your phone and browsing TikTok. You know, all those things are are not going to help you have a great day. So um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. I want to ask you about imposter syndrome a little bit. So for those that don't know. Imposter syndrome is the inability to believe that one's success is deserved or has been achieved as a result of your efforts. This, uh, this, uh, from what I've read, is something that you've dealt with in your life. Um, when did this apply to your life and, and how do you deal with it?
2: It's applied at all different points in my career. Um, early on is when it was definitely the worst and when I wasn't very equipped to deal with it. I It still pops up even now, but I have much better perspective on it. Um, my first... Assignment, you know, I gone through all those years of training. I get to Masawa, Japan, which is my first combat squadron Masawa is a really isolated smaller city. It's way up in the northern part of Japan um, Generally English is not widely spoken there uh, You're isolated I guess and so your squadron your wingmen, and your unit become your everything. They're your neighbors. They're your friends. They're your family on holidays They become everything and so I step into that environment and I'd gone through all these years of training and they had gone pretty well. And you feel like you should be fairly equipped when you get to that point. And when I got there, I actually discovered that what I had learned up to that point was just the tip of the iceberg. That being a fighter pilot was way more complicated than the actual physical flying of the airplane. That was something that you had to get to the point where you could do it in the periphery and your sleep practically, because you had to be monitoring all these sensors, understanding your weapon systems, understanding the enemy's weapon system, understanding other platforms, uh, other good guy platforms that are working together with you. And it's very complex. You're multitasking, you're thinking way ahead. You have to have situational awareness of three dimensions on a huge scope. Um, and I got there and in hindsight, I think I was probably a pretty average brand new wingman but up until that point i had done well at things like i had you know got a scholarship i had gotten a pilot slot and then i'd gotten a fighter jet which was just against the odds and i'd made it through all these courses and all of a sudden i get to massawa and there's just so much information to learn that no matter how many hours a day i put in trying to learn it i could not get my arms around it it was going to take months and months and months and that was new for me and so It kind of shook my identity of like do i even belong here like who am i if i'm not the person that's good at this stuff if i'm not like above average at everything and i also really felt like i had to put on this facade to fit into the squadron um i had some some were accurate and some were misconceptions i had this idea of what being a fighter pilot meant and in my mind everyone was very type a everyone was very assertive very competent and i'm more soft-spoken and reserved and i was a really shy kid i'm a little bit more introverted and i'm also very empathetic and i like feel like i focus more on eq type skills and that just isn't necessarily what comes out at the forefront in that environment and so You layer that in with being one of two women in the squadron of about 50 people. And I did feel like I was under a microscope and I really felt like I had to prove myself. So I couldn't show weakness. I couldn't show vulnerability. I couldn't ask questions when I had them because I didn't want people to realize I didn't know the answer already. And all of this created this perfect scenario where I felt very isolated. I felt like I didn't deserve to be there. Like this was the wrong career path for me, even though I worked so hard to get there. And I really felt like no one else was experiencing that. And in hindsight, having talked to some of the other people that were young in their career at the same squadron at the same time, they all felt that way. Maybe Mm -hmm. not the gender part of it, but they all felt like they were trying to establish a reputation in this new community. Like they were trying to learn so much information that it was overwhelming, but I felt very isolated. And so I think a. A huge part of dealing with it is getting perspective that it is not an uncommon thing that you are not the only one experiencing it and sharing that you're struggling with that feeling with other people who are in similar experience level to you i almost guarantee that as soon as you're like man i really feel like i don't belong here like sometimes i'm questioning if this is the right decision if i'm ever going to be good enough they're going to be like thank you for sharing that because I feel the exact same way and no one talks about it. Um, So I think recognizing that it's common and that it's just part of being a beginner at something and then sharing it with other people, connecting with other people. And that connection also allows you, if you're willing to be vulnerable and admit that you're struggling a little bit or you feel like concepts aren't coming as quick as, as you want, people are going to show up for you. You're going to find those mentors that can help you work through that. But the only way to get those close relationships and, build those connections, is if you're willing to drop those walls a little bit and be vulnerable with people. And I didn't discover that until probably three or four years into flying the F-16. My second assignment when I was in Texas, that's where I got to deploy. Did a lot of stuff there that I really grew a lot as a pilot and just as a person. Um, And it was from that assignment that I eventually applied to the Thunderbirds. And had I not gone through that period of growth there, where I kind of realized all these things and I found a really great community within my squadron and I started showing up just as myself instead of trying to play fighter pilot dress up, I would have never even had the courage to apply to the Thunderbirds because it's intimidating and there's Mm. a good chance of failure. Um, And so just recognizing that, like, it is so common. I still deal with it now. I just have perspective on it that it's normal and I don't let it stop me from taking action.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great answer. You know, talking to others, getting perspective and, you know, understanding you're not the only one who probably feels like that. So um, great answer. And it's the truth, I would say, in 99% of the, the cases too, right? So, yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, the next question I have for you. Okay, so let's say you're meeting with someone early in their career and they don't really know what they want to do. They know they want to make the world a better place to live in. Uh, what advice would you give to that person?
2: I always encourage people to take time to be really intentional and reflect on what gets them excited. Like what things do they do in their free time when they have the ability to choose what they do with their time? Um, like what things give them that reaction that I had when I saw those two jets take off? You know, mm. the it's that thing that in like your gut or in your heart that just keeps popping up. The thing in the back of your mind where it might seem like a crazy idea like starting a mm. business or um you know going to do something like becoming a fighter pilot uh but it never goes away right it keeps popping up over and over and over and a lot of times it's something that you know is there that you keep thinking about but you kind of brush it aside because it seems unrealistic and a lot of times it's something that you haven't told other people because you don't want the accountability Of sharing that goal with people especially if it's something big and there's a chance that you'll fail um and i encourage people to think at that level because i think a lot of us for a long time play small right like we kind of do what people expect of us we do what naturally seems like the next thing in our career progression and we kind of go on this autopilot without taking the time to really take a step back and be like what am i passionate about what gets me fired up what Hmm. could i see as my why that will keep me motivated when things get tough and i just encourage people to take the time to do that before they dive into something
0: yeah i can i can totally relate with what you're saying and, and you know i hear that actually when i ask this question over and over again too what what are you passionate about make a list uh, what gets you excited and really you got to be a little like self-aware you got to try things to explore Um, You know, if you had never been around fighter jets, you you might never have known that you wanted to be a fighter pilot, right? So um, all of those things, I think, are are good first steps for someone still figuring out what they want to do with their career and even what they want to do for fun as well. For me, it was uh, so I did engineering university. (laughs) And uh, shortly after, I actually started a list and I wrote down at the very top two things were YouTube and working out. And it's funny because shortly after that I started YouTube channels, and the one that really took off was the motivational content channel so Motiversity, and and we were on a number of other channels now too. Um, but had I never have really given that thought and just kind of gone ahead with school and you know all these things that you know maybe I'd partly decided on, but maybe my parents wanted me to do, and totally. <laughs> I was good at math and science, so engineering made sense, and I could have probably just kept going down that path, but 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 really giving thought to, to what are you passionate about is I think a, a, huge, a huge question that everyone should ask themselves too. What advice would you give someone interested in joining the Air Force?
2: So I think do your research. I will get a lot of people that will reach out and they'll be like, so how do I become a Thunderbird pilot? And I don't want to ever discourage people to setting that as a goal, but there's a lot that has to happen first. And the amount of quality resources that are available at your fingertips, on your smartphone even, right now is just incredible. And so you can find out about all the different ways to commission. You can find out about all the different career paths that you could take, what those commitments will look like, what the education will look like, what the benefits look like. And I also will have a lot of people that say they wanna be a pilot and they're wondering if the military is the best way to do it because the military pays for all your training. And if you go through the civilian route, It's very expensive. People are spending, you know, $100,000 to get through all the training to become something like an airline pilot. And I always remind them that being a pilot is second to being in the military. Right. And so Mm. if you commission and you join the Air Force or any branch, there's no guarantee that you will get a pilot slot. And if you do get a pilot slot, there's no guarantee you're going to get your first choice of aircraft. And I hope you do but you have to be okay if that doesn't happen. You have to be okay with your why, your purpose, being satisfied with just serving your country, however that looks. And I also wanna just remind people of that because I was in a position that looks you know, very shiny to the public, it's, it's a public facing part, we're ambassadors for the Air Force. But there are so many jobs, there are so many people that are putting in so much work that are essential to the mission. Like the, the Thunderbirds, for example, six pilots that you see in the demo and there were no backups so there, there were just the six of us behind them there's a team of 130 people they have all different jobs you know maintenance the um, people that maintain all of our gear different admin tasks there are just so many different options in the military and so it can be a lot to try to share with someone in one conversation so i think put in the time to see what resources you can find online Put in the time to think about what your motivation is um, to join the military as a whole, because there's a lot more to it than just flying airplanes.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's great advice. What advice would you give to your younger self?
2: This goes back to Japan, that first assignment. I would tell myself that the things I was feeling were normal um, and that I needed to find the courage to be more vulnerable with people which is like not the thing you expect a fighter pilot to say, I don't think, but Mm. I needed to let down my guard. You know, Brene Brown talks all about vulnerability and she talks about like armor. I was like a knight, right? (laughs) Like the Mm. full armor Mm. suit on, like no one could see me flinch. Um, but they needed to, they needed to know when I needed help. And I needed to ask for things that I was struggling with and ask for mentorship and, That would have created some really incredible relationships, um, some really incredible friendships. And I think, you know, my career worked out really well in the end, but I went through some very long years that were not enjoyable at that phase. And I could have gone through that a lot smoother if I had been willing to just let that guard down a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Be vulnerable. It's great. Great advice as well. So you were an instructor of fighter pilots at, at one point as well. Is that right? Or?
2: Yeah, so while I was in Texas, right around the time of that deployment, right after that, I became an instructor pilot as well, which is uh, a really exciting time in your career because you're given a lot of extra responsibility, but it's also really stressful because you're given a lot of extra responsibility.
0: Yeah. Okay, interesting. So, So what did you look for that, like, what would you say makes a great pilot? What personalities or, like, what mentality do you look for?
2: So... It is confidence, but more than that, it's humility. Um, In the Air Force Weapons School, which is our equivalent of Top Gun, um, so, you know, it's the best pilots tactically uh, go through that course. Their creed is that they want their pilots to be humble, approachable, and credible. And I think Mm -hmm. that's just such a great summary of what you need because, you do have to admit mistakes every single flight. You never have a perfect flight. You have ones that go well, but there are still things that you could have done better. And so just being okay with that and not letting that affect your value as a person. You just understand like, hey, this is how we operate here. And this isn't a chance where I'm getting shamed or ridiculed, or I'm not gonna shame and ridicule other people when I'm the instructor. But it's a chance for us all to learn and get better together because this is a team effort and we want to be the best that we can because this is again a high stakes environment um and then approachable goes along with that especially as an instructor pilot and you want that from the time you're young you know but especially once you're in that role you want people that were scared like me when i was a new pilot to feel like they can come up to you and ask questions and that they can seek your advice and your mentorship and the credibility kind of speaks for itself and i think that's you know something that i encourage everyone to seek out with with their competence and their proficiency as early as they can in their career regardless of if they're an instructor or they're brand new
0: hmm. yeah well said it, interesting it's, it's actually not the answer i would have probably expected um, right. confidence is one thing for sure that i, I would have expected but but humility, uh, being approachable and being credible, huh. uh, it makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense. The more you think about, it, the more you learn, like what it actually takes. It's such a mental side to to being a fighter pilot, and you really you, know, you can't be cocky because, <laughs> like that story you were telling about. I mean, that that could have been you know terrible if, if someone was, I don't know, over overconfident almost, yep. right?
2: Yep, hmm. for sure. There's like, I'm gonna mess this up. Let's see if I can get it right. There's a saying that there's old pilots and there's bold pilots, but there's no old bold pilots.
0: Okay, (laughs) I like that. Okay, next part here is, I was reading a story about someone had given you advice, and I don't know if you remember the exact story, but um, they had given you like some like positive words or encouragement. uh, and so has anyone ever told you anything that, that changed your life? And maybe it's the situation that's coming to mind to me, but it, really anything that comes to mind for you?
2: Yes. So I think as an instructor pilot, you're really in a position where the feedback that you give your student can really shape what they go do. Um, and I mean, as far as their skill level, of course, like critiquing them on what they're doing and giving them techniques to make it better. But I also mean as far as like uplifting them confidence-wise um, as they go through a difficult program. And so for me, the one um, that really sticks with me, and I, I don't think this instructor would even remember this conversation, but when I was going through pilot training, we had a lot of instructors, but not many of them came from fighter aircraft as a background. And because I wanted so bad to be a fighter pilot, the ones that did, I really put on a pedestal. And their opinions really meant a lot to me. And so early on in the program, I had flown a flight. This is a very basic flight. I remember we were doing like different types of landings. This wasn't like complex missions. This was building blocks, baby stuff. And the flight had gone well. And we land, and a lot of times after a good flight, you'll still go through the debrief process. You'll still look at things where that could have been better because it's not perfect ever. Um, but it'll end with like, hey, good work, keep it up. See you next flight. And that's it, and you're like done. And you get your grade sheet, and you go out and on about your business. This instructor who had flown F-15s before, so fighter pilot background, I really respected him. He did all that. But then at the end, he said, that was a really good flight. I think if you continue to take instruction the way that you are and continue to put in the amount of work that you are, that there is a really good chance that you will get a fighter aircraft out of this program. And I knew what the odds of getting a fighter aircraft at the end of pilot training were. I mean, I was watching other classes ahead of me go through their drop nights where they were finding out their airframes and it was anywhere between one per class of 25-ish students to maybe three on the high end. And I knew the odds were not in my favor. And so to have someone that I really respected take the time to say just that one little piece of a like feedback, that motivated me so much. It uplifted me so much. It gave me more confidence in the aircraft and it really helped push my performance to keep doing well and keep getting better. And I tried to remember that when I was an instructor, you know, like even Mm -hmm. if someone had a bad flight to try to leave them with ways to fix it, things they could work on and focus on to get better, but also to not be the one that just crushes their hopes and dreams, instead to be the one that's like, but you can do this and here's why. And I think it was especially important that he didn't just say, you're doing great, keep it up. You will probably get a fighter. He put some criteria in there, some caveats, right? Like you have to continue to take feedback as well as you are. You have to continue to work as hard as you are. And so I think he didn't even probably do this intentionally, but the way he crafted it was really impactful for me.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. And it's so true, though. When someone gives you really detailed words of encouragement and, and instead of neg- there's negativity, which of course isn't going to help. But but even if someone's really brief with you and just says, that's great, keep going, right? Like, it's encouraging, but it's not nearly the same level as as some of those, like, longer, well-thought-out uh, sentences that people can tell you. And it's incredible how that's, like, stuck with you. And obviously, um, he was right, so he obviously saw something in you as well. What do you think are some things that hold people back from um, from achieving their dreams?
2: Fear. <laughs> and a fear of being uncomfortable, Um, a fear of failure, of shame, of embarrassment. I think that's the the biggest thing, right? Like if we set a big goal, and I think if you're talking about dreams, like those are inherently big, right? This isn't like, I wanna make $2 more an hour. These are like big things. Those are the things that you think about again and again, and that you maybe haven't told anyone about because you don't want the accountability. Um, And they usually come with a big change. Uh, You have to leave behind where you're currently at. That might mean leaving behind the people that you're currently with, whether that's a relationship or your peers or your friends or whatever, Um, and moving on to people that support you in a new endeavor. It might mean that you have to get a whole bunch of new skills that you don't have. Um, And so I think that fear of failure, of embarrassment, of shame, and then of discomfort, because it's good—it's uncomfortable, it's going to be, because it's new, so it's unknown, it's scary. I think that keeps so many people stuck uh, where they're at.
0: So why did you decide to leave the Air Force?
2: A few reasons. Um, my body was beat up after pulling 9Gs every flight for three years, um, not to mention all the demands on in my previous assignments. So I was having a lot of back pain, a lot of neck pain, Um, and I'm 36 now at the time I was approaching 35 and I was, you know, looking ahead. I'm like, I'm not that old. I should not be struggling with this many physical ailments. And all of my hobbies outside of work are physically demanding. It's all outdoor stuff. It's like hiking and climbing and mountaineering and just physical things. And I want to still be able to do those when I'm 50, when I'm 60. And so I started to really think about that, you know, is it worth putting another seven years of wear and tear on my body doing this until I hit the 20 year retirement point. Um, And I would say honestly, the biggest thing beyond that was that my time with the Thunderbirds, my why shifted from what it had been earlier in my career. You know, early on as a fighter pilot from that first time seeing those two jets take off, my why was all centered around like the excitement of flying these airplanes. And after a certain point that starts to fade And what became more of a passion for me was inspiring other people. And there's not another job in the Air Force where you get to do that the level you do with the Thunderbirds. And I just saw it happening again and again. I saw it happening in person. I saw it happening in my messages on social media, in the comments. I just saw that there was so much good that I could have in the world when I had this platform. And you get that with the team, with the Thunderbirds, but it's only for two or three years. And I knew when I left, I would either go back to a gray unit where I would go back to the tactical mission, which is obviously important, but it no longer felt like it fueled my why. And Mm. I also knew that getting out of the Air Force and going the traditional route that most of my peers do to go fly for the airlines would also not fuel my why, even though that would solve Mm. the 9G problem. And so that was kind of the tipping point of, okay, I... I know I want to leave. I'm ready to be down flying the F-16, which is a big decision because I went through a lot to get there. Um, but it took me a little bit of time to figure out how I could fulfill that why on the civilian side. And I think I eventually got there with what I'm doing now.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, it wouldn't like becoming a, a pilot of uh, cargo, <laughs> a cargo plane wouldn't satisfy either of those things, excitement or inspiring others. So interesting and so now you're a motivational speaker is that right yes and you're an author also yes yeah tell us about uh, your children's book that you wrote
2: so i have a children's book it came out at the time of recording this about two months ago um it's called upside down dreams which is obviously a play on being inverted which i spent a lot of time hanging upside down um, in the f-16 and it was quite the journey to get to this book being published it's done really well it was a bestseller on amazon it's gotten such amazing feedback. I, If I ever have a bad day, if I go read the reviews on Amazon, <laughs> they are just so heartfelt. There's so many pictures of little kids just so stoked to be reading this book. Um, it's, it's just a great source of positivity. But I actually got the idea all the way back in 2019, so four years prior to it being published. Um, I was at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum with the Thunderbirds, so I was in my flight suit. I went into the bookstore there, and I was looking at all the cool uh, airplanes and space stuff that they have, And I was looking at the books and they have a whole bunch of children's books, but there weren't many that had a female protagonist. There weren't many that inspired little girls with someone that they could relate to, especially when it came to high performance aircraft. There were some more historical ones like Amelia Earhart books. And I think those are great, but it can be harder for kids to relate to that. Hmm. And so that planted the seed for me. I was like, okay, I want to write a children's book about a little girl that wants to be a fighter pilot. I did not quite realize how difficult it is to find a publisher, um, especially when you're a first-time author. And so I, you know, was very busy with air shows. I didn't have time to even write the manuscript until the pandemic and all our shows were canceled. Wrote a manuscript, sent off all these query letters to agents, and I probably sent out 50 query letters and got essentially no response or polite no's. Um I was like, okay, wow. this is harder than I imagined, but I'm just learning about this industry as I'm going here. Airshow started back up. It kind of got put on the back burner because I was just very busy with that again. Um, fast forward to the time I was separating from the military. So about a year and a half ago, I started to write on LinkedIn almost daily. It was a way for me to share my stories. It was a way to kind of play with how I could translate them into usable lessons that applied to anyone. And someone saw the content and resonated with them. She reached out and she was a ghostwriter asked me if I would be interested in working on a personal development book with her. At the time, I wasn't ready to do that yet, but I happened to mention this children's book manuscript and lo and behold, the publisher that she always, always worked with also published children's books. And so I was on a call with them and within I think two weeks we had signed a contract and the book was on its way. Um, they paired me with an illustrator. Seeing the illustrations for the first time was really incredible, it was stressful, I was nervous, but they turned out amazing. Um, Skylar, who's the illustrator did a great job and then finally the book was published about four years after the initial idea and uh, exciting because it's the first book in a three-book series so there's actually two more one will come out next June and then again the following June so Lily Padilly, the main character is a little eight-year-old who wants to be a fighter pilot she struggles with some judgment from her peers she struggles with her own self-doubt And she eventually is able to overcome that because her grandpa who used to be a fighter pilot is a great mentor for her, but she also goes to an air show and meets a pilot that looks like her and has just this one quick little interaction that really solidifies in her mind that this is a dream she can go do. And so it's kind of the interactions I got to have with little kids, but written from a fictional child's perspective.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is just so awesome. And I do have a copy of your book here, so oh, I, I didn't nice. get a chance to read it. So
2: It won't take uh, you long. We will have it's... one
0: in the office. And...
2: <laughs> I think it's within your reading level. It'll take you all of, you know, like 10 minutes.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I read it. I read it already. So. Oh, you did? Okay. I had to read it, to read it before. No, it, it's fantastic. And and like you said, the illustrations are, are amazing as well. So highly recommend it to, to anyone listening to this today. Okay, so time for our last segment here. We've got some rapid-fire questions for you. When you think of the word successful, who is the first person that comes to mind and why?
2: And right now, it would be other entrepreneurs. So there's some really amazing people in this speaking space. And one that I feel like I especially look to for inspiration, and I think she's been super successful, is um, Nicole Malakowski. Her call sign is mm. Fifi. She was the first female Thunderbird pilot ever back in 2005. So she has ventured through all of the extra pressure and stress and all the things that come with being a first in a very high profile role. And so she was a great resource for me when I was on the team as far as managing that. But then she since went on to do some just incredible things, a White House fellow. She uh, commanded a fighter squadron. She has twin children. Like she's just done all these incredible things um, while managing her own health struggles which she's very open about about having lyme's disease and she's a huge advocate for awareness with that and so she's done so much good in the world and she currently just crushes it as a motivational speaker i have Mm. run across so many people um in the speaking (laughs) circuit that have heard her speak and everyone is just like she was incredible and the fact that she manages all of these things and she's also just incredibly kind and approachable and I was like generous with her time. I think it's that combination that makes her successful. You know, the ability to crush it on the business front, the professional accomplishments, but also to make your family a priority and also just be a good human while you do all of that. Not a lot of people just kill it on all fronts like she does.
0: Yeah, no kidding. She sounds incredible, honestly. What is the book that you recommend the most?
2: I think it's a tie between two and these are both really popular well-known bestsellers for a good reason so ryan holiday the obstacle is the way i you know Mm. he dives into the stoics and he really boils things down like complex concepts that people like kind of generally know that they should do and like ways they should live but he just has a way of writing that's very digestible and like so applicable i think to anyone and then um, Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is obviously a wildly successful book as well. Uh, he also is just very good at giving people like actionable steps on how they can change their habits, which are really the foundation of any behavior change, which is how you go change your life. So it's simple little tactics and techniques that are so usable that can actually change people's lives. Um, they both just are really good at that. And I love both those books.
0: I haven't read Holiday's book yet, but I've read Atomic Habits twice, so I can definitely yeah. attest to that one. What are some common misconceptions about you?
2: Uh, I think a lot of them have been debunked now that I'm very open about everything to people, but I think people had the misconception that I was like superhuman, like that I was fearless, that I didn't experience doubt and, you know, imposter syndrome and all of those things and That misconception is actually one of the reasons that I wanted to do what I'm doing now and why I talk about the topics that I do, Um, Mm. because I think kind of demystifying that and humanizing something that seems that has like so much mystique to it um, kind of normalizes it. And it makes people realize that like, oh, hey, if if Mace or Michelle struggled with all those things and did what she did, I can feel the way I do right now and go on and do some pretty awesome stuff.
0: Yeah, that's a great answer. Do you have a quote you live your life by or think about often?
2: So there's a quote by, I'm pretty sure it was Mark Twain and I'll probably mess it up a little bit, but he says something like, I forget the exact words he used, but I've had like I've had a lot of failures in my life, most of which never happened. Um, and so I think he's just highlighting something that we can all relate to where we worry about things going wrong, we worry about failing. And the vast majority of the time, that doesn't actually come to fruition. So I think he just encapsulates it really well by saying, you know, I've had a lot of failures in my life, most of which never happened.
0: Mm, yeah, that's a great one. Michelle, what's next for you?
2: I am really loving what I'm doing right now, um, but it's growing. Uh, mm-hmm. Speaking has been incredible, and I hope to continue to speak on bigger stages to bigger audiences and more frequently. Like that's always a goal. But I also am looking at finding ways to share my story and my message with people that won't find themselves in a corporate keynote audience, because I think there's a lot of people that I want to reach that aren't going to find themselves just by happenstance in in front of um, in one of my keynotes. And so I have another book in the works. I can't share too much yet, but I think I'll be able to announce publicly a lot more details soon, and it will be for adults. Um, so that mm. will be an amazing way for people mm-hmm. to get in touch with that. and. You know just continuing to do the children's books continuing to grow my audience in a way where i can you know positively lift up as many people as possible and how i do that will probably evolve over time but i'm just in a spot where i'm really excited and i'm open to opportunities and it's just a great time for me professionally and personally really they're hand in hand right now so i'm just happy to be doing what i'm doing and i'm happy to be curious about what's going to happen next
0: Awesome. That's great. Michelle, thank you for joining us at Motiversity. It's been a really inspiring it's an episode. It's been very insightful. You know, we talk about following your dreams and we talk about um, facing your fears. You've done both of those things in your life. Um, so I just want to say thank you for sharing your journey
2: and being on the, the podcast with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I know you have a big audience, so it's an honor to reach so many people and you asked great, insightful questions and you bought my book. So heck yeah, thanks for having <laughs> me.
0: Yeah, no problem. We'll have to chat about it after. It was hard to get here in Canada.
2: <laughs> I know, I've heard that. I'm trying to fix that actually.
0: <laughs> yeah, no worries. Where can people find you in your book?
2: Uh, so Amazon is the easiest people place to get the, the book for sure. If you just search Upside Down Dreams or my name, Michelle Kern, you'll find it. Um, if you want just content in general, Instagram is at Mace, my call sign, underscore Curran. LinkedIn, Michelle Mason quotes Curran. And honestly, LinkedIn, I do a lot of longer form content. I write on there about five days a week. Um, I still do all that. I'm still very involved in that process. And it's taking a lot of the stuff I shared here, like little stories from my career, lessons from them and how you can use them. So a lot of people have found uh, value there. And then if you're interested in learning more about the programs that I do, the workshops, the keynote speaking, um, just macekern.com. It's kind of the one-stop shop for that.
0: Awesome. What message do you want to leave everyone with listening today?
2: So we kind of talked about this overall, but you know, one thing I say in my keynote uh, speech, and that I think is kind of like the overarching thing that I want to impart on people is that the key to progress is having the courage to start something when you're not ready, but believing Mm. yourself enough to know you will figure it out along the way. And I think realizing that all the people you admire that you look at as successful, that you put on a pedestal, they don't have some magical roadmap or magic eight ball giving them the answers or showing them the way. They've just realized that and they're willing to start things and figure it out as they go. And it turns out a lot of the time, that it will work out and so i just encourage other people to kind of adopt that mentality
0: yeah that's a fantastic message
2: thanks michelle absolutely thanks for having me